Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington, and you can find our plan there. Also, we have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you're jumping in today, we are starting on day 85. And we would love to take questions from you. So if you're reading along or listening along and there are questions that pop up or you need more clarity on or maybe something doesn't make sense, uh, send us those questions and we try to make time every week at the end of our episodes to answer those questions. There are three ways you can send them uh, to us. One is an email. Email address is info at grove.church. Put in the subject line a podcast question. Uh, or the other two ways are on social media, uh, either Facebook, where the Grove Church is, Evan had already said, in Marysville, Washington. Uh, you can DM us there or you can follow us on Instagram. Uh, and Our handle is thegrovech. Uh, you can DM us there as well, and we get the questions, and we'll, like I said, take time to answer them. So this week we are we're kind of we're doing a little bit of a boring section again. <laughs> not the whole podcast. Your, your section's boring. Yes. Well, not the whole section, just part of it. And it's here's true. The, it's true. I used to kind of be, you know, like, hey, you can't call a section of the Bible boring. I've kind of gotten a little bit more like, you know, when you're just getting the a, a, a head map of where all the tribes are. I'm not afraid yeah. to say that's a little bit less exciting to read than some yep. of the narrative things that we're going through. Uh, but we will talk about that today. So chapter 13 picks up with the Israelites after the war and the battle, or at least the big chunks of the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things that I think is kind of a misconception of of the way we view the Old Testament is we kind of think of Joshua as they conquer all of Israel yeah. and then we're good. Nope. Well, that's not what happens. Yeah. False. They, they take over a bunch of the big cities. They make a ton of headway, but there's still what you'll see in, in Joshua is he's reminding people constantly that, hey, there's still holdout cities in your lands, in your different tribal lands. And so now instead of it being the entire army of Israel's responsibility to go and fight, it is now the individual, individual tribe's responsibility to take hold of all of the land that God has given to them. And yeah. we'll see that some tribes do a good job and other tribes, uh, not so much. Looking at you, Dan. So <laughs> poor poor Dan. <laughs> they're just like- He's got the weird name in, in the tribe. They're just the apostate tribe. They go north <laughs> eventually. They're not included in Revelation. They've got, it's a real, uh, it's a real bummer for Dan for a lot of, for a lot of their history. But what are you going to do? If your name is Dan, it's not a bummer for you. But it's a bummer for the tribe of Dan. If just, your name to, just to be clear, if your name is Dan, I hope it's short for Daniel. That's the only thing I'm <laughs> yeah. saying. I'm just kidding. Uh, all right. So, jeez. So anyway, uh, so chapter 14 begins with a uh, with a long section where we see the allotment of where the tribe is supposed to be. Uh, and here's the deal, listeners. I've said this on a couple things. I cannot stress enough. Find a map. Hundred percent agree. Hundred percent. A, if you don't have a study Bible, really invest in one of those. Um, they're great. Uh, I like the ESV study Bible. Aaron likes the CSB study Bible. Yep. There's other ones out there too. Um, if you don't have a study Bible, go on Google. Just look up the twelve tribes of Israel at the time of Joshua, because it's it's going to help you immensely yeah. <laughs> as you read this. So, there you go. It's like it's literally like me telling you, "Hey, let me tell you about my my plot of land." And it's not going to make any sense to you because you have no visual representation of where I am, what it looks like. It's it's going to be the same way that we feel, and that you'll feel that in this chapter, which is why it's important if you have a map. You can actually begin to see, oh, that's the territory he's talking about. Oh, that's what he means when it says, I think, what is, not Ephraim, is Ephraim in the middle of, of Ju- anyways. Oh, but Simeon. Simeon, yeah. Yep. So you you see, you'll, you'll be able to see more clear, with more clarity what's actually being said with these boundaries. So. Yeah. It's like when you're reading the Silmarillion and you get to the chapter that's sure. just the, the lands of Beleriand. Because like, everybody has read Everyone has tried to read the Silmarillion. I can't even say you know, it. It's a, it's a fun word to say. All right. Anyway, uh, but in chapter 14, before we get into the straight 
straight up, here's the borders. Uh, Caleb also reminds the people that he has he has been kept supernaturally youthful. And here's the thing. I never noticed this before. And this is what I love about doing this podcast because you would think, you know, no one's ever brought this up, but you would think like, hey, you do it once. Why do you have to keep doing it every year? Like, why are you doing a podcast every year about reading through the Bible? People can just listen to the season one. Um, it's because you learn things. <laughs> like yeah. The Bible is, you know, it's almost like it's living and active, but uh, you you what? learn so much upon reading and reading and reading. So I never noticed that Joshua and Caleb are supernaturally kept alive. Of course they are in yeah. hindsight, but I just kind of think of, you know, oh yeah, back then everyone lived a long time. So of course Joshua and Caleb are That's living true. into their hundreds and it's normal. Um, it, no, it's pointed out that God has kept me alive. Yep. All this time. And and it's not just that they're kept alive. It's that Caleb and Joshua are in their mid-80s when this is going on. And, and still youthful and spry. Yeah. It's not like they're in their throne and commanding the armies. Like, it's literally Caleb is leading the army and yep. he's going and he's fighting a bunch of people. So it's not just that they're kept alive. It's that they're kept strong and youthful. And you will see that they live a very long time as well. So, And Caleb outlives Joshua, by the way. Right. And I guess like in the back of my head, I always thought, because you know how God says everyone except Joshua and Caleb will, will die out from the generation. I kind of always thought he killed off everyone else early. When they were younger. Right. That's not what happens. They nope. live fairly full lives. Yeah. He just keeps Joshua and Caleb alive longer than that. So there you go. Good times. Uh, so uh, he asked, Caleb asked Joshua for permission to go take hold of his inheritance, which is the city of Hebron. Uh, and this is given to him, to him directly by Yahweh. So Yahweh says that because of what you did when you went out to spy out the land, Joshua and Caleb both get cities of mm -hmm. their own in the tribes. Uh, and so Joshua gives his blessing and then Caleb just goes off. And Caleb knows what Caleb does. He's yep. just, he's kind of awesome. So he goes and he, he takes it. Uh, chapter 15 gives us the territory of Judah, which is the southernmost tribe. And so again, check out a map, but it's the southwest of Israel, what we would think of as modern day Israel. It's also, if you have a basic idea of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, it's it's Judah, right? That's pretty much where it is. Uh, and then uh, this tribe is home to Caleb and Othniel, who we'll talk about in a little bit, but he's another famous Judean that's in this period of time. Uh, chapter 16 and 17 contain the allotments of Ephraim and Manasseh. Uh, Ephraim is north is located northwest of the Dead Sea, which is the biggest body of water in Israel and also the worst. Um, <laughs> I mean, only if you want to drink or eat things out of it. But, yeah. You know, if you're into like floating. Hence the cool. name dead. Yeah. Uh, and then they have a small river giving them access to the Mediterranean. Uh, West Manasseh is located directly north of Ephraim and it borders the Jordan River to the east and the Mediterranean Sea to the west. East Manasseh we've already discussed, but it's the northernmost section of the eastern tribes. And these are the, remember, East Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben are located on the east side of the Jordan River. So after this proclamation, uh, the people of Joseph, and so when I say that, when we say the tribes of Joseph, that means Ephraim and then both West and East Manasseh, because those are the sons of Joseph, uh, they complain about their smaller inheritance, which is kind of <laughs> funny because you look at the map and you're like, I mean, you've got a lot of land. I mean, I don't know, guys. You're just a little bit, I guess Ephraim's is a little bit small, but like Manasseh's got like, they got like, if you combine them, I think it's bigger than Judah. So they're kind of complaining. Babies. Yeah, they're complaining a little bit. So Joshua responds, I put in typical dad manner. Uh, that's, how, that's how I read this passage. Uh, but it's Joshua chapter 17, starting in verse 15. It says, and Joshua said to them, if you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest and clear ground for yourselves in the land of the Perizzites and of the Rephraim, since the, uh, the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the place 
have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Shehan and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, you are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. Though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to the farthest borders. You shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they are strong. So basically they're like, Joshua, our land is too small. And he's like, okay, if you're so big, go take the rest of the land that you're allotted. And they're like, but they have chariots of iron. He's like, essentially, guys, come on, come on. You got, you got the Lord. Go like if you're if if the Lord's for you, who can be against you? So that's the whole thing there. After this, we're going to get into the remaining inheritance uh, inheritances that Joshua gives the people of Israel. Um, he gives them a real kick in the pants, and he tells them, "Hey, hey, get back to work! Like we're not done here." And this yeah. is a big thing that you'll notice at the end of Joshua, where you know God has done great things. The people of Israel have a ton of their land, but Finish the job is yeah. kind of the message of Joshua, which unfortunately, you know, they, they, they don't Doesn't all happen. They don't all do. Uh, so we are then giving a description of Benjamin's lands, which is located directly north of Judah and has an eastern border along the Jordan River. Uh, Simeon is given an inheritance entirely surrounded by Judah. So that's what Aaron was referencing earlier. Uh, it's in the southeast region, but it's kind of like, it's not an enclave, I guess, because it's not like there's something outside of it, but mm-hmm. it is fully surrounded by, uh, think Eswatini in South Africa, so, <laughs> listeners. So there, there you go. Oh, yeah, I'm tracking with you now. I have no idea. Uh, Zebulun is located north of West Manasseh with no access to the Jordan River or the sea. So, oh, oh that's a bummer. Landlocked. Yeah. Issachar is given land directly west of Zebulun with access to the Jordan River. Wait, that doesn't make any sense. That should be east, I think, it's because the Jordan River is east. But I, 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 I might have led you astray on that one, listeners. What? Uh, Asher is look is the northernmost tribe of Israel for now. Looking at you, Dan, uh, and has land along the Mediterranean. Naphtali is is directly east of Asher, and it is north of both Zebulun and Issachar. Dan is the final tribe listed, and they are given land bordered by the uh, by the sea in the west. Ephraim, Benjamin, and Judah to the east, and then the Philistines to the south. I wonder if that comes up. It won't come up this week, but next week we'll done, we'll, done, done. we'll meet a certain guy from the tribe of Dan who uh, does some fighting with the Philistines. So, but we'll we'll talk about him. I think next week. Yeah, next week. Is, yeah, next week. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Uh, so there it is. That's. That's all the inheritance. Well, I guess I shouldn't say all. The Levites are also given cities in each of the tribes. So you can read through all the different cities that they're given there. Uh, The long section ends with a reminder that Yahweh has given this land to the Israelites and that no enemy could stand against him. So basically, it's kind of that be strong and courageous without using those words. But Mm -hmm. it's saying, hey, hey, you didn't go take these lands. I gave them to you, lest you need to be reminded of AI or, you know, the Jericho thing. It's like you had siege weapons, like the walls just came down. And so that's, you know, God's reminding them, go take the rest of it. Uh, In chapter 22, the Eastern tribe of Manasseh and then the tribes of Gad and Reuben return home. So remember, they had land to the east of the Jordan River and they already possessed it before Joshua starts. Mm -hmm. They possess it in Deuteronomy. But part of the deal is you can't just chill here. Like you have to send your armies to go help the rest of Israel conquer their lands and then you can return, which they agree to do like on, on, on for them. Like they, they are totally cool with it. They send all their armies, they do what needs to be done. And then Joshua gives them the freedom. Joshua gives them the freedom to go back later. Uh, so a little bit, uh, something interesting happens here when this all goes down. So as they cross the Jordan, 
they build an altar on the west side of the Jordan River. And so remember, that's not the side that they dwell on. That's the side that they would be crossed over yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, when the people of Israel heard, the, the, when the Western people of Israel heard what had happened, they sent Phineas, the son of Eleazar, with an army to confront them. Eleazar being the high priest and Phineas... Uh, of of spear stabbing fame yep. in uh in is it Deuteronomy or Numbers where he does that? Ah, uh, it's all blurred together to be honest with you. So if you're yes. if you're thinking of like I think it's Deuteronomy. Yeah, when it's when the Israelites they started intermarrying and worshiping other gods. Phineas is the guy that just grabs a spear and kills the, kills Maybe, the guy, and that's it's one ends, of those two books. That's what ends the plague. So Phineas, uh, not just a Disney oh, it would be cartoon. Numbers because Deuteronomy is mostly a recap. Yeah, I think you're so right. So numbers is what would happen in numbers. It se- it seems like what's going on here is if you if you really need a, a battle fought and you need a guy who's intense, uh, you're going to go to Caleb first. But if Caleb's unavailable, you go to Phineas, the son of Eleazar. Yeah. Seems like how this is going. Uh, and so Phineas leads an army to go confront them. And then this is how the people... So the armies are here, right? And this is how the people of Reuben, Gad, and East Manasseh respond. So this is in Joshua chapter 22. And this is the tribes of West Manasseh, Reuben and Gad speaking. The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. Okay. So what's happening here is remember God commands them the altar where sacrifices are going to be. Uh, commenced. That's in the tabernacle. That is where it's going to be. And so if these tribes are building an altar north for themselves, that's a blatant heresy. Mm -hmm. Um, And we'll see this really come up in the book of Kings when we talk about the high places. That's what the high places are, is there's separate altars where it's kind of this weird in-between step where you're not necessarily offering sacrifices to other gods. When, when you're talking about the high places, these are usually places where you're offering sacrifices to Yahweh, but you're not offering sacrifices to Yahweh the way that he has commanded them to be offered. So it's still sinful and it's still, um, in this case, it's deserving of, of death, right? And not only is it a separate altar that could be for the Lord, it also could be for other gods. And so they go and confront them and they're saying, hey, if you guys have already gone apostate on us, then we're going to, you know, we're going to go ham here. Uh and so continuing on with what they said, they say, no, we, but we did it from the fear that in, in the time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generation after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with burnt with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings so your children will not say to our children the time to come you have no portion in the Lord so what Reuben Gad and East Manasseh are concerned about is that the Jordan River you know it's it's a it's a serious boundary right it's not an easy thing to cross it kind of naturally divides the land of Israel into two so these three tribes are worried that in the time to come, the people on the Western side of Israel will not view the Eastern Israelites as truly a part of Mm -hmm. Israel. And even then they might say, and this is specifically what they're afraid of, that 
Yahweh is not your God. He's our God. You don't deserve to worship Yahweh like we worship Yahweh. And so what they want to do is they built an altar saying, no, 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 remember, our fathers built this altar when they returned to the east side as a memorial that we serve Yahweh and that we came and we helped Western Israel conquered their lands before we settled ours is kind of what's going mm-hmm. on here. Um, and I put, again, speaking of things I never picked up on, honestly, their fears may have been well-founded. If we go back in the chapter, so this is chapter or verse 11 in chapter 22, listen to how it's described. It says, and the people of Israel heard it and said, behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. So even there, the implication is they're not the people of Israel. They're, yeah. they're their own thing. This side belongs to Israel. So I don't, it's not like, um, at first I kind of worried that like they're looking into the future a little bit and they're saying, oh, this could happen. It seems like it's already starting to happen yeah. because this is, this is a quote, right? This isn't the author of the book saying, this is saying, they're saying, hey, this side belongs to Israel and they built an altar over here. So kind of. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So uh, uh, some interesting dynamics going on there. And well, unfortunately, pretty much all the tribes of Israel kind of go – yeah, once Israel yeah. – once nor- the northern kingdom of Israel falls, most of the tribes are kind of scattered and dispersed. You really just have Judah and some of the Levites and I would assume some of the Simeonites, but I, that's not as brought up as yeah. before. But but you also got to remember some of the dynamic there too is even when Reuben and the and Gad and that, that half tribe there, when they first were getting ready to enter, they looked at Moses and they said, we want to settle here. This land is good enough. And Moses kind of rebuked him. There was this tension. So True. in that, in that, exi- in the reality of what's going on here, there is this divisiveness unintentionally, because on one part of it, there was a lack of confidence and maybe a little bit of cowardice by uh, these the, these tribes. So the perception among Israel, it could very well be playing into the fact that they didn't really want to go inherit the land that God promised Israel. Right. They want to settle for something less. Um, and, and so there is that, that at play as well, because these individuals would have remembered this because this is still the gener- the second generation that in, is inheriting the land. And so there is that at play too. So there is this rift. Um, and so throughout this, like the fact that Phineas, uh, has response to this indicates that there is a, is, is a need to be aware of that, but it is like, there is this rift. And so that's why the altar was built because the, the East, Eastern Jordan tribes, Jordanic tribes wanted to make sure that they were still a part of God's people because they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so both both tribes have their stance or both sides have their stance, but it is this idea and this this fighting for unity that is playing out too. It kind of reminds me of, I think it's Jim Gaffigan has a bit about how he doesn't trust people from the Midwest. He's like, he's like, cause they're the people who they were going West. Like they're trying to get to the ocean and then they got to Wisconsin and they're like, ah, this is fine. <laughs> That's what Reuben and Gad and East Manassa are like, ah, we're this good. Is, this is fine. We don't need. We don't need to keep pushing forward. Um, but yeah, it's not a part of the original partitioned promised land. Yeah. I suppose you could say. But it's clearly a part of Israel and a part of the new promised land. Like yep. God, it, it's it's not that Moses grants this request without God's approval. God Correct. says, "Yeah, no, that's fine. They can have it." So yeah. there you go. Uh, but anyway, all this to say, Phineas is satisfied, and he returns the army with no bloodshed. So they're like, "Okay, no, that's a good reason. We get it. We're going back." So no one, no the no civil war. 
yet. Uh, we'll get to one. We'll Whoa, get to what? We'll, yeah, we'll get to a really bad one at the end of Judges. That's just ugh. That's the that's one of the worst stories in the Bible. Yes. But, well, anyway, we'll get. I don't want to spoil that. All right. So in chapter twenty three. Many years have gone by. So we, we take a big jump forward and Joshua is now close to death. So uh, the passage is, this passage here is very much a Deuteronomy in miniature. So remember Deuteronomy is Moses close to death and he's reminding the people of Israel, here's what's most important before you go and take hold of the promised land. The end of Joshua is Joshua's close to death. He's reminding the people of Israel what's most important as they go to continue to take hold of the promised land. Um, he reminds the people that it is Yahweh who has given them this land and that they must serve him and him alone. Chapter 24 gives us another covenant renewal at Shechem. So remember, this happens towards the beginning of Joshua. We talked about it last week. It's told in Deuteronomy, God commands that this is this should be done. Yep. It it's happens. Fulfilled. The, yep. It happens at the beginning of Joshua. It's funny because at first I forgot that we talked about it last week. So when I was reading this, I was like, did it take them this long to do the covenant renewal? And then I was, oh no, they're doing it again. So mm-hmm. Shechem is kind of a special place. And uh Joshua reminds the people of Israel what Yahweh has done for them. And this is included, but not limited to. He really goes through the history of Israel here. Um, So he talks about how God chose Abraham to father his people, even though he worshiped other gods. So Abraham, it's, you know, it's not like he's like Yahweh's the best. And then Yahweh's like, okay, you're my people now. No, God calls him out. Uh, He gave Edom to the people of Esau, which I think is also a thing that we, we don't really remember very often because you know, the Old Testament is the story of the people of Israel. It's not the story of the people of Esau. Um, but they also have um, land given to them by the Lord. They are part of that Abrahamic covenant. Uh, delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt, which, you know, that wasn't that long ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people here probably don't remember that, but it was their their parents remember it, so they, or their grandparents at least. Uh, and then he gave them the land that they are currently occupying. Uh, And then finally we get, so this is in response to that history lesson. We get this famous passage, and this is among the most famous passages in Joshua. It's not the most famous story, but if you're going to get a verse on a mug, this is the (laughs) one that you get. This is the one. Yep. Uh, So Uh, uh, Next to the be strong and courageous. Yeah, that's true. Uh, So Joshua says this, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. And so remember, I, I like one thing that Pastor Nick always says is that when you see a therefore in the Bible, you have to ask, what's the therefore? Therefore, and it's it's there to remind them, hey, here's everything that Yahweh has done for us. In light of that, serve him in sincerity mm-hmm. and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers have served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Um, this is, an, sorry, I want to pause here for a second. Speaking of things that you don't notice, because I, I feel like this is kind of the theme of this season of Let's Read the Bible, is we're kind of just talking about things that are popping up to us fresh. Last year, we were talking about Ezekiel. And if you if you might remember, listeners, if if you really if you don't if you really pay attention and listen to us, uh, you might wow. remember that we were talking. Wow! Wow! Shots fired! I'm just kidding. I I have a hard time listening to me. I feel like I talk too fast as well. I need to work on that. But sorry, that's a whole other thing. Uh, last year we were talking in Ezekiel about how he specifically references the apostasy of the people of Israel in Egypt, and I think there's. I, I talked about this last year during a message I did. I think VeggieTales Jonah really ruined my view of Jonah, and I, it took me a long time to actually realize, oh, wait, there's a bunch of things happening here. I think Prince of Egypt ruined so many things about the way that I view <laughs> Moses. Uh, and I love Prince of Egypt. Fantastic movie. Um, but the whole idea of the beginning is, what is it? It's the people of Israel worshiping and crying out to Yahweh for deliverance. Um that's not exactly how it goes down. <laughs> like they're worshiping other gods in Egypt. So it's not like they're fully maintaining 
um, their Yahweh worshiping ways, God has, and, and, and that's evidenced by the fact that they have forgotten the name. And I guess, this is years ago, I had this epiphany, but I always thought that the moment where uh, God through the burning bush says, tell them that I am has sent you, that's the first time that God reveals his name. It's not. It's just that no one knows, no one remembers the name, but he reveals mm-hmm. his name to Abraham. Um, and so it's, and, yep. and, and before that as well. So there is this, and even like in in Job, which is taken before um, before the Mosaic law, Yahweh's name is mentioned in there as well. And even Job himself says it in, in one chapter. So really interesting there, uh, but he talks about how put away the gods that you served in Egypt as well. So Verse 15, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the regions beyond the river river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought our fathers from the land of Egypt. Uh, I, just, I just wanted to pause here. Good for remembering that. Because remember, <laughs> what is the golden calf thing? It's them saying, behold, these are the gods that took us out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. So their sons and their grand and their, their children and grandchildren here, they are not making the same mistake. Behold, it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, who did those great signs in our sight and presented us in all the way that we went and among the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all of the people of the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will serve the Lord for he is our God. So good job. Good job, Israelites. Way to not make the same mistake as the previous generation (laughs) did. Um, And if you've been following the podcast for a while, you know that one of my favorite things to do is to read the last section of books because I think I think it's just important. <laughs> I think when you see like how how is the author choosing to wrap up the book, I think you see a lot of the themes kind of making their final stand here. So after Joshua's final speech, we get this in chapter 24, starting in verse 29. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim in the north north of the mountain of Gash. Gash? I don't know how to say that one. Uh, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all of the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known the work that the Lord did for Israel, which, you know, you're not going to be able to say that very often as we go forward in the Old Testament. So we kind of think to ourselves like, oh, wow, yeah, they served the Lord during the time of Joshua. That's a great thing because yes. as we get into Judges, as we get into Kings and Chronicles, you're going to see that, that is, uh, that's not always the case. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the peace of the land that Jacob bought for his sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money, and it became an inheritance for the descendants of Joseph. So that's a long payoff. Remember, Joseph says when he dies at the end of Genesis, he wants to be buried in the promised land, and it's finally fulfilled under Joshua centuries later. So that's really cool. Uh, And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah in the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. So also we see there that it's kind of fitting that mm-hmm. Mo, you know Moses and Aaron die very close to each other, and that's the same thing with Joshua and Eleazar. It's swapped where we see in Numbers Aaron dies and then is followed by Moses. In Joshua we see Joshua dies and at least is it's implied that it's followed by Eleazar. It doesn't it's not necessarily stated for sure. Yeah, but there you go. And that's it. That's the passing away 
of this generation that we've been reading about. It, go, it went a lot quicker than Moses, right? Moses, we spent four books yep. talking about that generation. Joshua, just one book, and it's going to get even shorter. And Judges, we're going to go quick yeah, hits be fast. on the generation. So we'll get to that here in a second. But first, we do want to take a moment to remind you to, hey, you know, if you haven't left us a five-star review yet, that would be super cool. It'd be super rad of you listeners to leave us a five-star review. Um, but in all seriousness, it does help us get the podcast out there to more people and continue to grow this community of people listening. Uh, on Apple Podcasts, you're able to leave a written review. And if you do leave a written review, we will read it on the podcast just like Jovi2. Jovi 2. She left us a re- or I'm assuming it's a she. Jovi's a female name. Listen, not to be confused uh, with Jovi 1. Yeah. That, <laughs> it's so bad. Um, that's like a pastor dad joke all wrapped up in one. I got to practice um, my dad jokes. But she wrote out there, uh, she said, as I'm going through the Bible, I really needed, needed a discussion about what's happening big picture while also focusing on chapter sections. This is so helpful and a big part of how I'm understanding what I'm reading now. Thank you both for this podcast. Um, I love I love that it's it's helpful. I love that it's intentional and it's helping you, uh, Jovi, read through. So thank you for that review. Um, and, and maybe you feel the same way. I would love for you to jump on and leave a review as well. Uh, so we can shout you out too. And it's also, it's also encouraging for Evan and I uh, just to know that the work we put in um, is, is, is needed and it's helpful. So uh, I appreciate the review. Um, but the podcast doesn't end with the book of Joshua. We actually are going to be jumping into the book of Judges this week as well and covering the first six chapters. Uh, and I, I say it this way, Judges is like this fast paced up and down overview of the nation of Israel's hot and cold commitment to the covenant with God. Um, it, it judges details, God's judges or, uh, his agents of deliverance, uh, for his people as they're oppressed by different leaders within, uh, the promised land from the individuals who they did not remove in essence, they didn't drive them out. Um, the one thing to remember about really all of scripture, but really specifically, even the book of judges is that God is both the central character and the hero for the judges. It's God who empowers, it's God who rises up. And we'll see that take place throughout, uh, the 20 plus chapters of judges. Uh, it takes place after Joshua's death, as we've already discussed, because Joshua is no longer alive. Um, and just as again, reminder, the nation of Israel is living in the land of its inheritance, uh, and there's still work to be done. Uh, and so I, I think as I'm reading through uh, this myself and as I'm using my CSB study Bible, um, the, I, the book can be broken down three parts, as I would say. Part one would be the prologue in chapters one through three, verse six. Um, this is kind of the setup for the context of what's happening. Uh, it really deals with the failure of the second generation in the inherit in the promised land um, to press on with the conquest of Canaan. So you see that in the first three chapters there. Uh, part two would be a six-fold cycle of sin and salvation, uh, which starts in chapter three, verse seven, and goes all the way through chapter 16. Uh, this is really the core of the book. Uh, as well as the book structure. Uh, and it kind of is, is built around six major judges, but we'll also see six minor judges. Uh, but is this, when we say six-fold cycle, it is a cycle. Um, and I'll get to, to kind of how you know when the cycles are repeat, or repeating or starting again uh, in a little bit. But uh, And then the final section, which we're not covering today, uh, just like we're not covering the bulk of uh, the, the book of Judges because we're only reading the first six chapters, the, the is what would be referred to like as the appendix, uh, not like the... Uh, organ, the organ. Appen- appendix, but like the end of a, a book. Um, and really from sh- chapter 17 to 21, it really will show the full effects of human depravity uh, that let loose on God's people based upon their 
um, their hard-heartedness based upon their disobedience and their rebellion to worship other gods. Yeah, famously, the last line of Judges is, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And those chapters really hammer Are home brutal. that point. It's mm-hmm. not not great, but yeah, that's next week. You'll, you'll see the full, the full display of what happens when people don't. When there's no leader, uh, which you'll see that there is some tension here even early in the chapter, uh, but then there's no definitive faithfulness to God too. So um, so today we're tackling part one as well as the start of part two. Uh, and so st- I say this, like chapter one starts off great. Like it's, Good job. it's God calling Judah. Hey, go take care of the Canaanites. The, and then Judah looks to uh, their brothers and said, hey, come with us. Um, and And then spirals down quickly. Uh, so you'll see in chapter one, this instruction given to Judah to take the land of the Canaanites. Judah recruits Simeon. They conquer the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Uh, they capture the king. They cut off his thumbs and his big toes, uh, which is kind of ironic because this king that they uh, did this to had actually done that to 80 plus other people uh, and cut off their big thumbs. So he, the, the, this king, I, I, don't, I didn't put the name in my notes like a chump, uh, but he says, oh, God must be repaying me back for what I did. Um, and so they capture the king, they cut off his thumbs and toes, uh, they continue on, they capture Jerusalem, continue the conquest until they encounter, and this was interesting to me, uh, something I'd not picked up on, but they encountered uh, people, they, they were able to take the hill country, but they couldn't conquer the people in the plains uh, because they had iron chariots. Um, That's a theme. It is. <laughs> it's a very much, and it's interesting because... Um, I was trying to figure out, well, why couldn't they? Because right before in this in this section, you see that it's God has enabled them to, they were able to take the hill because God was with them, but they couldn't take the conquer the people in the plains because they had iron chariots. And then right after that, you see this conversation of Caleb driving out, who he receives an inheritance, as we already talked about, and he drives out the three sons of Anak. Now, Anak, remember, it's like like massive people. Like These are like giant, strong warriors, capable. Uh, this was part of what when the spies first went into the promised land. The sons of Anak are there. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes. They're built for war. We're built for nothing. Um, and so there's a tension, and Caleb, inheriting his promise, his land, goes and drives out three sons of Anak on his own. Uh, and so you see literally this moment of God was able, it was with them. They conquered the hill country, but they couldn't conquer the people in the plains because they had iron chariots. Caleb was given his land and he drove out three sons of Anak. And you see this contrast that plays out that I think is really, really kind of shows the lack of obedience that the, the Judah had. Well, I think one of the things too that helps with just the the historical reliability of scripture is if you have a conservative date of the Exodus, which is to say like if you're using the dates that are actually like... In the Bible, the way that we would count it out, uh, it makes sense because they would be – Egypt would be height of Bronze Age. Uh, mm-hmm. Israel would be coming through. They would have been spending years in the wilderness. And so it makes sense that in their minds, yeah, bronze. Bronze is awesome. All of a sudden, iron comes around and you're like, wait, whoa, wait whoa, whoa, hold, hold the technology? phone. Um, and so it makes sense that they're, this is a rare technology, but they're starting to encounter it. And the wealthiest mm-hmm. nations of the area are starting to – are starting to make use of iron a little bit more. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things where it's it's hard for us today to kind of wrap our minds around like, yeah, it's just a different type of metal. Who cares? Like, 
I mean, it's it's kind of like it's almost the difference, I guess you could say this is a crude analogy, um, but you could also almost say it's the difference between like muskets and rifles or the difference between uh, like technology in World War One and World War Two, mm-hmm. where it's not like a ton of time has passed, but just leaps in technology happen yeah. and all of a sudden it becomes very difficult to fight. Yeah. And those people and, and the the Israelites are not the Israelites, the the nations that are still part of the promised land, they didn't they weren't sharing this technology of iron. True. They were holding it close to the chest because they had the advantage. And so God's people are coming to a people that are far more advanced um, technology, technologically, as you already talked about. Um, but you see this contrast play out, which I think is really, it really is uh, this, this tension of obedience and faithfulness to the covenant of God and what happens with Caleb, because Caleb is not only prolonged in life by God, but he's also still faithful to God and he's still reaping the benefits of that where he's able to go and take care of three sons of Anak on his own. Yet the whole tribe of Judah couldn't conquer people that were in iron chariots because of their lack of faithfulness. Um, and so you see this. And, and I, one of the things that I thought was really intriguing or interesting to read um, is that when you look at Joshua, you'll see it's a, it's a book of victories and conquests that resulted uh, from remaining true to the Lord. And then as we get into the book of Judges, you're going to see this contrast where there's the emphasis on Israel's failure to remain faithful and therefore the subsequent defeats that happened as a result. Uh, and that's what's playing out. You're seeing the the juxtaposition of faithfulness to God and faithlessness to God and the resulting conquest or the result of the inheritance of God's promised land to his people because of each. Um and so then we get this one moment in the in chapter one, the end of chapter one, verse 27, 28. It says, at that time, Manasseh failed to take possession of Bethsheen and Tanakh and their surrounding villages or the residents of Dor, Iblim or Megiddo and their surrounding villages. The Canaanites were determined to stay in this land. Now, real quick side note, Megiddo was a very prominent city that would have, if they would have taken Megiddo, they would have had a better stronghold to take on the land of Canaan. But because they failed to take possession of it, they had a harder time to overcome Canaan in general. Uh, and then verse 28, and this is what I think is, is really important. Again, it shows this tension. It says, when Israel became stronger, it shows that the reality of the lack of the faithfulness to, to, to God. When Israel became stronger, they made the Canaanites serve as forced labor, but never drove them out completely. God's direction was not to make forced labor. God's direction was to drive them out of the promised land. Even as they grew stronger to where they could actually begin to handle themselves and begin to, to take over the inheritance, they didn't drive them out completely like they were told to, which is a lack of faithfulness to what God commanded. Well, we see what it leads to as well, because, and this isn't the only reason, but it reminds me of when you look at the spread of Christianity in the Roman Empire, um, Christianity is the religion of the servant class for a very long time. It's true. Uh, it's not the rulers. It's not the and not that there was no influential or no wealthy people, but for the most part, it was lower class people who were becoming Christians. Um, but eventually, it grows and it kind of moves upward. Mm-hmm. You kind of see that happening here, where yeah, I mean, look, like we're not going to drive them out completely, but we're in charge. Like we're yeah, you know, we're, we're strong enough. We're capable. Exactly. And what do you see? You see the idolatry of what Israel has made into a, a servant or a slave class, but all of a sudden their worship of other gods trickles up mm-hmm. and it starts to really influence the people of Israel. I mean, spoilers, but obviously that's, that's just what's ruined gonna, my whole thing. No, happen. Yeah, it's so true. Uh, and so that's how chapter tw- chapter one ends. Is this this reality that they uh, there's a little bit more in chapter one, but the the reality that they were they they made them forced labor. They didn't drive them out as, as they were supposed to. Uh, we see chapter two starts off with an angel of the Lord showing up and rebuking his people for their lack of obedience. Uh, again, this is all the prologue. This is setting up contextually what's go- what's coming in the book of Judges. Um, 
And so we read this in chapter two, the first four verses. It says, the angel of the Lord went up from the Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you out of Egypt and led you into the land I'd promised to your forefathers or to your fathers. I also said, I will never break my covenant with you. You are not to make a covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You are to tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore, I now say, I will not drive out these people before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a trap for you. (gasps) (laughs) And when the angel of the Lord had spoken these words to all the Israelites, the people wept loudly. It's in that moment they realize like, oh man, we messed up. Um, We see after this moment, we see a flashback to Joshua's death, followed by a contextual revelation for us as we read Judges, which I'm going to read this uh, because, and this is probably the largest chunk of of Judges I'm going to read uh, in one moment. But Judges chapter two, verses eight to 17 says, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. They buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash which we already read. The whole generation was also gathered to, to their ancestors. After them, another generation rose up who did not know the Lord or the works he had done for Israel. This is an important piece because even as Evan wrapped up Joshua, you see that the generation of Joshua's generation had passed away. They they served God faithfully. And I don't know if you caught this and I didn't say it when you were talking about it, but it was they served as Joshua's leader, they served God faithfully and all the elders of, of the leadership of Israel. Right. So all of the leadership of Israel led well to serve and be faithful to God. And then they all died. And then the second generation that's in the, in the promised land rose, grew up, but they did not know what the Lord or the works he had done. Shows a couple failures there. One, the failure to pass on to the next generation what God did. Joshua's generation held it tightly and understood and held to it faithfully. But passing it on now, whether there was ignorance on the, the the next generation, whether there was a lack of transition and trans uh, of I guess transition is the right word of that truth to the next generation, whatever the case is, this generation is now living in land that they don't remember who God is or what God did for them, and so they're literally living on their own in their own accord, saying, "Hey, look where we're at." Well, I think we see this in. I keep jumping forward to kings because it just reminds me of so much, but like the three greatest kings in the history of Israel and Judah are David, Hezekiah, and Josiah. That's, not in that order. Yeah, not in that order, but that's pretty much, uh, it's pretty much indisputable that if you're going to rank them, yeah. those are the top three. Um, all three of them are followed by terrible kings. Um, it's so Solomon true. follows David. And, you know, I think we kind of have a Sunday school vision of Solomon, but remember like, no, he leads the people away from worship <laughs> of Yahweh. Like he's not a good king. For being a wise man, he was an idiot. Yeah. And then Hezekiah is followed by Manasseh, who is awful. And then Josiah is followed by, I can't remember if it's Jehoiakim or Jehoiakim, but he's followed by a series of weak kings Mm -hmm. that eventually are, those are the kings that are around during the fall of Jerusalem. And so you see these really high highs of those three kingships and you see it fall flat. And I even think you see it today. Like I was... um, when you look at like the history of revival in the church, you have you know the Great Awakenings or or any of any of the other ones that we can talk about. Um, you almost always see that next generation after just kind of grows complacent and takes it for granted, and then by the generation after that, it's almost forgotten. Yeah, and it, it is. It's a really sad, but it's a very human story that's being told here. And, and lest we think it does not apply to us today, yeah, we got to well. be careful with that one for sure. Um, so. This generation didn't know the Lord or the works he had done. 
And then verse 11 says, the Israel did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They worshiped the Baals and abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They followed the gods from surrounding people, followed gods from the surrounding peoples and bowed down to him. They angered the Lord, for they abandoned him and worshiped Baal and Ashtoreths. The Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he handed them over to the marauders who raided them. He sold them to the enemies around them, and they could no longer rest their enemies. When the Israelites went out, the Lord was against them and brought disaster on them, just as he had promised and sworn to them, so they suffered greatly. The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders, but they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods, bowing down to them. They quickly turned from the way of their fathers who had walked in obedience to the Lord's command. They did not do as their fathers did. If you want a synopsis of the book of Judges, there it is. The people did not know who God was. They were then uh, oppressed by marauders. They cried out to God. He shows up and delivers them. They have a serious peace and then they rebel again. And it's just, this is where the cycle begins. Um, and, and this is where it sets the stage. We see in chapter three here, it sets the stage for the core of the book of the six cycles of sin and salvation. And the, the chapter three, the first six verses concludes the prologue. It reveals the nations that were left to, the, to be thorns in the sides of the nation of Israel. And then a line we will read often starts off the first cycle. It says this, that the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot the Lord, their God. Uh, and then we're introduced to the very first judge in the book of Judges, and his name is Othniel, which is Caleb's younger brother, as the CSB says. I think, Evan, you you said other translations to call it. So there's a little bit of, he's, I should have actually written down, I believe in one he is described as the nephew of Caleb, mm-hmm. and then one he is described as the brother of Caleb. The usual way that I think we synthesize those is that one is referring to his familial um, connection because Othniel is the guy that would have received Caleb's younger or daughter as a wife, correct? Right. So yeah. The way I read it is that Caleb or Othniel is Caleb's nephew. And when it's referring to him as his brother, that's basically like a, an honorary title yeah. because that is his father was the brother and that's the family. So he's like Caleb's brother family, even though he's a generation yeah. down. And again, the, the way family dynamics worked back then are not the way they work now. So, um, so Othniel delivers God's people from the king of Aram. Uh, and then it says they had peace for 40 years. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, Othniel's probably, he's a solid judge, but there's not a lot of pizzazz because the book of Judges, when it comes to these cycles of sin, you see a lot of dramatic realities of how God delivers his people. Othniel is probably the least dramatic uh, portrayal of how God delivers his people. Um, so then it says that they had peace for 40 years. Then we're introduced, that same line happens. Israel, the Israelites did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot their Lord and they worshiped other gods. Uh, and then they are then oppressed as well by the king of, of, of Moab, King Eglon is his name. Uh, and then we're introduced to a left-handed judge who rises up uh, named Ehud. Uh, and we are told that King Eglon is an extremely fat man. Uh, Classic. Which is, which, is, uh, which is kind of, it's comical to a degree, um, but it's just painting a picture of what, for what's about to happen. Um, there are a couple of new, interesting nuances here that uh, I knew about, but was reminded of, uh, but then even, I guess I forgot about. Um, and so left-handedness in that time, most likely seen as a defect. Um, so if you were left-handed, sorry, Evan. Yeah, it's a little offensive, but okay, whatever. <laughs> if you didn't know this, Evan is left-handed. Um, I'm kind of a day walker, though. I do some things left and some things <laughs> it's right. It's true. It's weird. It's very true. Don't you throw right-handed? I throw and I play racket sports right-handed, and then I shoot right-handed, but my left foot is dominant, and then I bat 
And he writes left-handed. Lefty, I golf lefty, I write lefty. It's he, a whole- He's just weird. I'm just a freak. He, he's not sure who he is. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but it's it could be seen as a defect historically back then. Uh, it is interesting to note, uh, it seems that left-handed was relatively common among the Benjaminites, which I didn't realize that, hmm. which is ironic because Benjamin means son of the right hand. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So, it's, so, so I read that today. I was like, oh, that's funny. That's comic right there. Um, so because of Ehud being left-handed, he was actually able to create a specially made sword that would fit in his right thigh. Uh, and when he would go before King, which is what he did, he brought a tribute to the King, uh, King Ehud. And shows up, but they would, they don't pat down the right side because if you're right-handed, your sword is on the left. Um, and cause you pull across your body, you don't pull from your same side cause you have better motion of, of pulling your sword. Anyways, all that to say, they would have checked him for swords on the left side of his body. They would not have checked the right side. Um, and so he had, was able to conceal a sword in the left inner thigh, um, because he was, or in the right inner thigh, because he was left-handed. Um, so he shows up to King Ehud, or he shows up to King Eglon, uh, he brings tribute, and then he says a little bit later, hey, I, have a, I, have, I, need, I need to tell you something. So we, the king sends everybody out. He comes up to whisper a secret in his ear. Uh, he says he has a message from God. He takes this sword out of his left or right thigh and drives it into the stomach uh, of King Eglon. And it says that the fat covered the handle and then Ehud snuck out the other way, locked the doors, and uh, has this kind of awkward moment among King Eglong's attendants because the door is locked. They think he's relieving himself. He's taking a long time. They find the open and find him dead. Um, and then it says that Ehud won or defeated, and brought, and there was peace for eighty years uh, to the people of Israel. Uh, and then in chapter three, we get one verse about this guy uh, who. I don't know if he was a judge. I'm still kind of on the fence. I'm unsure. I think some some reports would refer to him as a minor judge, um, but I, I wrestle with the judge thing because oftentimes when there's a judge and deliverer, and I haven't done a ton of research into this, and I should have, um, but there's oftentimes a period of peace after their judgment, after they deliver Israel. But this guy named Shamgar, verse 31 says this in chapter three, after Ehud, Sham, Shamgar, son of Anath, became judge. He also delivered Israel, striking down 600 Philistines with a cattle prod. If ever there was a, a part of the Bible where it's like, please tell me more. <laughs> this would be it. That's one of those. And it, no, no, yeah, that just happened. Yeah. And so there's a couple things here, I think. One is he's often referred to as a minor judge, but he isn't said to have judged Israel. All right. We see that he became judge, but there's something interesting going on here. Uh, there's no indication of peace after this. He also is, is a non-Israelite. It says he's a son of Anath, which was Anath, 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 whatever. Um, he was a, who was the Canaanite goddess of war. Um, but he delivered uh, Israel with the cattle prod. Um, and so it's kind of a little highlight. And then we see in a few, in, a, in chapter five, which I'll get to, we see a kind of a, a connection piece that I think is important to understand too. Um, in chapter four, we we are then de- introduced to Deborah, who is a prophetess, and Barak, who is called to deliver God's people. Um, he tells Barak, or she tells Barak that God had told him to go up against Sisera, who's the commander of King Jabin of Canaan's army. Um, but Barak says, I won't go unless you go with me. She says, I'll go with you, but the honor of defeating Sisera will be handed to a woman instead. Now the reader could be left to believe, well, then Deborah's going to get the glory. Deborah doesn't get the glory. Uh, we are then introduced to Heber, who's a Ken- who's a Kenite, which is a descendant of Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law. Uh, and then we see or introduced later to his wife, Jael. Um, and through this fight, 
Barak is then sent to uh, attack and start fighting uh, King or, or, or Sisera's army. Sisera is in a chariot. He realizes he's going to lose. He flees from the chariot and runs to the wilderness, finds a tent of uh, Heber and Jael. Heber is out, but Jael is there. Jael brings him into her tent and, and promises to hide him. He's exhausted. He asks for a drink of water. She gives him some milk. He then covers him back up. He falls asleep. And JL comes back quietly with a tent peg and drives it through his temple. Boom. And he's dead. <laughs> and then it says that Barak was came looking. JL says, let me show you. I'll bring you to the one that you were looking for in Sisera. Uh, and Jabin uh, is defeated because the power of God's people increases. Uh, but JL is the one who gets the credit and the honor for defeating Sisera. And then we get to chapter five, which is a song of celebration and thanksgiving that is led by Deborah and Barak for the people of Israel. Uh, and this moment, and this is what I was referring to in chapter five, verses six, six through seven, says this. This is in the middle of the song or the very beginning of the song. Uh, it says, in the days of Shamgar, Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the main roads were deserted because travelers kept to the side roads. Villages were deserted. They, desert, they were deserted in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, a mother in Israel. And it's important. And the reason why I highlight this specific thing is because it's a very poignant moment in Deborah and Barak's song calling out the lack of leadership in Israel. In essence, God had to use two foreigners to deliver God's people. Uh, Shamgar was not an Israelite. Jael was not an Israelite. And God used them to bring deliverance to his people from the oppression of King Jabin. Uh, and, and this is a, a very telling and tragic revelation from Deborah. Uh, and it says, until I, Deborah, rose a mother in Israel. And so she had this moment of leadership uh, when there was a void of leadership. Um, the song continues, uh, calls out a blessing over jail, uh, and then calls a blessing in favor to God for those who trust him and follow him. And then at the end of this, it says that Israel had peace for 40 years. Um, and so we see this provision of God, uh, his work through Shamgar, who was not an Israelite, his work for, through Deborah uh, and the lack of leadership from Barak, uh, and then the work of Jael and her, her faithfulness to kill Sisera. And then there's peace because of uh, the leadership that Deborah then stepped into because there was a void. Uh, and then we start in chapter six. Um, this is the reason why my son has a name. Uh, not really. I'm just kidding. If but... it wasn't for this judge, he would just be son. <laughs> That's it. Boy. Uh, no, this story, this starts the story of Gideon. And this is where we're going to end. We're not going to hear the full story uh, of Gideon, but we get the beginning part of it. Um, and so it starts the, sto the story of the judge Gideon. The people of Israel were then, because again, they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They rebelled. They didn't worship him. Uh, they were then handed over to Midian, uh, who Midian teams up with the Amalekites and people of the East. So it was a, this uh, group of people saying, hey, let's partner up and, and go oppress and take care of, God, of, of the Israelite nation. Um, their crops, the Israelites' crops, their flocks, their fields were all destroyed and taken uh, by the, the, the marauders. Um, which I actually really like that way that God calls them out. You're going to have marauders that will take over your land. It's a good word. Um, but they, they, they're oppressed, uh, and it also shows that they're impoverished, which means they're they're in poverty. They're fighting to keep food. They don't have a lot of food, which means they have to be very shrewd and sneaky and secretive about making food, which is where the story picks up with Gideon. Uh, he is the youngest son in the weakest family of Manasseh. So he's not very prominent. There's not really any, no one would look at him back. Hey, he's, he's someone God should choose. Uh, and so he's threshing wheat in a wine press. 
In other words, he's preparing to make bread in a place that was never designed or intended to make bread. But that's where he's at. He's trying to be secretive. He's trying to have a place that is private and quiet where it can't draw attention. Because if that happens, then the marauders will show up, take the food from him, and leave him impoverished. Well, yeah. Ancient wine presses were often dug into a pit Mm -hmm. as part of it as well. So he's kind of like, he's going underground so people He's hiding, yeah. Underground is the wrong way to say it. But yeah, he's going in a basement, I guess, is kind of a way to, you can almost put it. Uh, Yeah, like you said, to avoid being seen by, uh, you know, the oppressors at the time. Yeah, so... He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Um, an angel of the Lord shows up. Gideon, and, and it's interesting to read this exchange, which I, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to you reading it. Um, but Gideon asks, why is all this bad stuff happening? The angel of the Lord doesn't even answer. The angel of the Lord directs him, hey, you're going to r- deliver this people, rise up. And then uh, Gideon says, okay, well, give me a sign. You don't leave until I come back. Let me prepare some." And he goes and prepares an animal sacrifice. He prepares a meal, but he kills an animal. And it's interesting because... Food is scarce at this point. An angel of the Lord, who he doesn't realize really who he is, shows up. He says, "Don't leave. Let me prepare something. I need you to give show me a sign that this is good, that this is true." He goes and prepares a meal with soup. He brings it back to the angel of the Lord, and this is the account in Judges chapter six, verse nineteen to twenty-one. It says, "So Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from half a bushel of flour." It very well could have been the flour he was threshing in that wine press. Oh, yeah. um, he placed the meat in a bath. So the food, the, the the wheat that he was threshing to prepare a meal for himself, he decided, to, I, I'm going to make it for you because I need to have a sign that's proven. He placed the meat in a basket and broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. So it was, they now kind of transitioned to an oak tree. Um, the angel of God said to him, take the meat with the unleavened bread, put it on this stone and pour the broth on it. So he did that, which is almost this sacrificial moment. It said, then the angel of the Lord extended the tip of a staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire came out from the rock, consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. It was this incredible moment. And you read, and as you continue to read it, you'll realize that's when Gideon realized, like, oh my goodness, I just realizes I just saw the Lord. <laughs> and his response was like, oh, that's not good. And then in this response, God comes back and says, hey, peace, be at peace. <laughs> I, I called you. I, I'm setting you apart. You're going to deliver the people. It's obviously Pastor Aaron's paraphrase. Um, so Gideon, in, that after, in response to that, then goes to work. He grabs a couple bulls. He wants to say, he's going to tear down the Baal altar and the Asherah pole and then build an altar to sacrifice to Yahweh. But he was afraid of the men. <laughs> The men's response and his dad's response. Sure, sure. So he waits till bedtime. After all the men are sleeping, he does it in the middle of the night. He tears down tears down the altar, tears down the Asherah pole. He builds a new altar, offers a sacrifice on it, and then leaves the second sacrifice on the altar overnight. So when all the guys wake up, they're like, who did this? Who tore down the altar? Who tore down the Asherah pole? Through some investigation, they found out it was Gideon. They go to Joash, who's Gideon's father. He says, hey, bring him out. He has to pay for what he did. Um, and he has to, Baal is not happy. And then Joash actually wisely says, Hey, if Baal, if Baal is upset, let Baal defend himself. And that's kind of where Joshua was let off or not Joshua, sorry, where Gideon was let off the hook a little bit. And cause it seemed right that, okay, fine. That makes sense. We'll do that. Well, we see that come up a little bit later with a, a certain prophet of Israel who is offering, you know, Hey, if Baal is, uh, if Baal is all he's cracked up to be, yep. why don't we just put that to the test? Also, I want to do a quick 
correction. You said, "Oh, I don't." Well, I'm just. I, I was reading through it just to make sure. But you said Gideon realized he saw the Lord, not necessarily, right? Because we're talking about an angel of the Lord. This isn't. We wouldn't count this as a Christophany, or would you count this as a Christophany? I, well, I didn't. I didn't have clarity that it would actually be a Christophany, but there's there's potential it could be. Right. So it's it's kind of one of the ambiguous, uncertain moments. Sorry, listeners, for those of you who don't know, a Christophany is seeing Christ in the Old Testament. So there's a few definitive ones where like the most famous one being like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when uh, Nebuchadnezzar looks and he's like, that fourth one looks like the son of God. So there's things like that. Uh, but there's other moments where like it could be um, actually like the second person of the Trinity uh, appearing to people, but other times it's what we would call angels as well. So. Yeah. And that, and that was Gideon's response. He said, I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. Um, and, and historically, biblically, whatever, um, not whatever, but biblically, we see that the response to an angel of the Lord, oftentimes it was evoked in humility. And and the fact that he was, the, the fact that his response, this is where it's uncertain. I don't, I don't right. know if, but it very well could have been, but it also could not have been because it was an angel of the Lord. Anyways, uh, but yeah, good point. Good clarity. Um, now I lost my... Oh, no, here we are. Sorry. Um, so after he tails down, tears down the, the bale or tails down the altar, uh, we then pick up this moment. It kind of fast forwards to a moment and it says the Midianites, the Amalekites and all the people these gathered to fight. Uh, and Gideon, it said the spirit of God came upon Gideon. He was stirred. He rallied uh, all some of the tribes of, of God's people. Uh, and then he asked God for confirmation of a victory. Uh, by laying down. So they're kind of getting ready for war. Gideon's, I, I kind of picture him in his tent trying to pep him, you know, pep talk himself. Let's go. Uh, we can do this. He's like, but God, I need clarity from you that this is going to happen. You're going to give me victory. Um, and so he, he, Gideon says, show me a sign. And he uses a fleece for uh, this sign to be shown. And he actually does it twice. And we read it here in, in chapter six, verse 36 to 40. It says, and this is actually the end of our reading this week. So ending here uh, is kind of ironically poignant and funny. Uh, but it says this, six, chapter 6, verse 34 to 40. It says, The Spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon, and he blew the ram's horn, and the Abizarites rallied behind him. He sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh who rallied behind him. He also sent messengers throughout Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali who also came to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, so this is him rallying the, the tribes of Israel, and it says, Gideon said to God, if you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you said, I will put a wolf fleece here on the threshing floor. If dew is only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, I will know that you will deliver Israel by my strength, as you had said. And that is what happened. When he got up early in the morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung dew out of it, filling a bowl with water. Gideon then said, do not be angry with me. <laughs> Let me speak one more time. Please allow me to make one more test with the fleece. Let it remain dry and the dew be all over the ground. That night, God did as Gideon requested. Only the fleece was dry and the dew was all over the ground. And chapter six ends, and that ends our reading for the week. And we'll pick up how the fight happens next week. Will the Israelites drive the Midianites <laughs> out of the land of Israel? Will the Midianites be able to conquer back and take even more of the land? Will Gideon use a third fleece for an additional sign? <laughs> Find out next week on the, the exciting conclusion of the story of Gideon on Let's Read the Bible. Well done. Well done. Thanks, man. That was not planned. So well, well hey, before, before we wrap up today, uh, we did want to talk about what we learned today. Yeah, for me, I think the big thing I was taking out of this week is just how even in the moment of victory that the Israelites have, it's it's halfway. 
And I think that's and that's what gets them in trouble, hmm. right? As the, as the generations continue to go on, the li- it's the little things that they didn't take care of all of a sudden become massive problems later. And so I think for us in our lives, we we can kind of apply that that principle as um, you know, with many of us who say that we're Christians, we're serving the Lord and we're and we're pushing forward most of the way. But then what are the little things in our lives that we're that we're kind of letting pass by, whether it's th- maybe it's things that God has called us to do that we're kind of putting by the wayside, maybe it's sin that we're not really really willing to deal with. Um, what are the small things in our lives that we're letting just kind of be by the wayside that could one day all of a sudden come back uh, to haunt us? And so I, th- I don't know, it's, it's just it's a, an interesting thought I had while we were going over the story of the people of Israel in Joshua and this whole idea of of completing mm-hmm. what it is that God has called them to do. And, and that's kind of a struggle that we see just kind of going the history of the Old Testament. It's a struggle we see with every generation, right? Like, I don't I don't know if there's any generation of Israelites where it truly is like, and they did everything the Lord commanded of them. And they like, you know, they yeah. did a great job. Like even Moses uh, in that, like, like he fails uh, at the end and that's why he can't go into the promised land. This generation of Joshua, which is one of the greatest generations of the Israelites, even at their height, they don't fully accomplish what it is that God has commanded them to mm-hmm. do. Uh, and I think it's a it's a poignant reminder for us today. Yeah, that's really good. Um, and and as I was thinking about just the book of Judges, and, and there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of stories here, but it, it goes back to that Deborah um, song and, and kind of overlaps into um, the lack of recognition and awareness of God's people, the second generation where they did not know the Lord and the works that he had done. Um, but just the idea and the reality of lack of leadership. I think when, um, and, I'm, and man, I don't, how do I say it without like being super critical, but like the need for people to be fully obedient but also understand clearly what the Lord has said and not, not compromising. I mean, it's, it's that same vein of thought to a degree. Um, but I think it's, it's really challenging and thought provoking to me in twofold one um, and the various roles and capacities that God has placed me in, whether it's pastoring, whether it's parenting, whether it's husbanding, um, that's the, that's the word, whatever, whatever, whatever roles God has placed me in, uh, to understand, but to also have clarity on what he's calling me to do within those roles. Um, and and knowing clearly that he has told me, this is what you're supposed to do, or this is what I'm calling you to do, to walk with that with absolute integrity and commitment. Um, because a lack of leadership leaves leaves God's people exposed, leaves the people that I'm in charge of exposed. And that's what we see play out in the book of Judges so far. That's what Deborah was singing about when it came to Shamgar or Jael. Like there was no leadership and therefore God used people outside of his people. And I'm not saying like I'm the elect and all these different things where I'm part of God's promised Pete land. And no, no, but I'm saying like, I think there's something significant about understanding our call as followers of Christ to be leaders within the roles he's placed us in. And, and I think that that carries a lot of weight that we have to be wholly committed to it. Um, holy meaning entirely committed to it. And it plays out to my kids. So even as I was reflecting on the generation that did not know the works of God or did not know the Lord, it's my, like, I could see how easy it is to so focus on my walk with Jesus that I'm hoping my kids get it, but to strategically disciple my children, to be aware of, to recognize the truth, but also recognize the work of God and how to be obedient and responsive to God. 
that's in, that has that requires intentional conversation and dialogue with my children. And and so I wrestle with this tension as I'm reading through the book. Like, God, I don't want I don't want my kids to be a generation that didn't know you or the works of you. And that requires me to lead as you intend me to lead. And I'm thankful in the midst of that weight that I feel, that we all should feel, that he also promises to equip us. That he doesn't right. just say, hey, go figure it out and lead. But he's like, I'm with you always. And I will give you everything you need to live a godly life. I will equip you. And so so I think that's the application that I really wrestle with in this in this tension is, or in this passage and in this week's reading was, God, where are you calling me to lead? What roles have you placed me in? What are you calling me to do? And give me the tenacity to finish what you've what you've called me to do. Um, because again, I don't want to finish halfway. Because I mean, can I say it this way and be really out of cliche? The next generation of followers of Christ depend on it. Um, and that's the tension that I feel after reading and seeing, ob- observing from a distance, and knowing the end result. Man, Lord, what you've called me to is is big, but you're so faithful to see me through it and to empower me to do it. And I think those are really big things. Yeah, Aaron, I don't know about you, but I think the uh, I think the children are our future, and that <laughs> yeah. it matters. Well, I just wrote a song. Can I sing it? I'm just kidding. There you go. I'm just kidding. Well, that does wrap it up this week. Uh, we didn't have a question come in. So as a reminder, if you have any questions that pop up, it doesn't have to be about what we're reading, just Bible in general, send them in because we love answering them. So one of our favorite segments to do there. Uh, but that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find all of our other resources on our website, grove.church under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you, and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great week.